Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Not proud that that was me And when I face it A little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power everyone, this is Amanda and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories about alcoholism, addiction, and recovery. I am joined tonight by my co-hosts, Catherine and Nellie. Hi ladies, how are you tonight? Hi hey there, great, thanks Amanda. Great. Um, so tonight we are going to talk about relapse triggers. When people stop using alcohol and drugs, they are given a second chance on life. Some embrace this new life and never look back. Others find find living without alcohol and drugs to be a struggle every day. Regardless of your experience, we are all susceptible to triggers which can cause us to relapse. Recognizing and managing these triggers is important to maintaining our sobriety. Apparently, I can't talk tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Too many holiday triggers. Oh, Mm -hmm. I know. (laughs) So what what are triggers? A trigger of addiction involves any high-risk situation or stressor that cues a thought, feeling, or action to use alcohol or drugs. There are two types of triggers, internal, which occur within us, and external, which occur outside of us. As I was researching this topic, I came across an article that described our brains as computers that store memories forever. You may try to wipe them clean from your memory, but they are there somewhere deep within your system's or brain's memory. You can be sailing along smoothly in your sobriety and then something happens out of the blue that triggers an urge or a thought to drink. This can leave us feeling vulnerable or weak, so it is important that we try to avoid these triggers when possible and develop tools to deal with them when they do surface. It is also important that we we don't beat ourselves up if we have a thought of drinking because we are hardwired to drink. However, relapse can be very dangerous and sometimes even fatal, so it is critical that we learn skills and behaviors to avoid and deal with these triggers. Before we get into the topic, we would uh, like to introduce our wonderful guest, Elizabeth, who has actually been on the show before. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome back to the Bubble Hour. Hi. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Oh, well, you are a very important show, a part of the show, and we really appreciate you joining us again. Um, So we'd actually like to start off by having you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself so that our listeners can get to know you. Okay. Um, My name is Elizabeth. I'm an alcoholic. Um, I have five years sobriety. I stopped in uh, 2009 um, in the fall. It was uh, was in October, and 
it was right before the holiday season, so it was really like a baptism by fire <laughs> because I really had to, um, like, uh, Thanksgiving came up very quickly. So, um, and also I actually lived through Halloween, too, which I didn't wasn't prepared for the triggers that Halloween would bring. Um, I was really kind of focused on, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do to get through Thanksgiving and Christmas because there's going to be family and a lot of drinking and celebrating and I'm going to feel so left out. And actually uh, Halloween turned out to be very challenging too because a lot of people on my street, like I'm sure other people can relate to, um, everybody walks down the street and they have their little roadies in their um, in their cups and everybody's uh, having a good time and they're drinking and I just felt like a visitor from another planet. I was like hun- like hunkered behind my, you know, like it, uh, behind my closed door for a while. And then I was like, I've got to take my kids out trick-or-treating. And so I went out, and I just felt like such a party pooper. And um, then we got into uh, Thanksgiving, and I had to uh, worry about all that. And so I was told, like, when I first got sober, I really have to um, – I have to avoid anything that's triggering, and they named it as uh, people's people, places, and things. So I really had to kind of get to know what my triggers were, and avoid them. So uh, when I got to Christmas, I mean uh, Thanksgiving, I wanted I, I walked into my relative's house, and I was like, I knew that I was going to avoid the kitchen because that's where all the drinking takes place. So I was going to. Um, try to avoid any kind of drama, any kind of uh, uh, fighting or anything, just just kind of stay out of everybody's way. So there, I was really just dealing with kind of just a, like an, I was kind of in an avoidance mode. And that's really what I understood, the avoiding like the triggers. You really just want to kind of avoid um, what what sets you off and what makes you want to drink. But what I was troubled by, and I was telling um, the person that was working with me, uh, in my, you know, she was my, uh, she's my sponsor, saying, "How am I going to deal with, with, you know, I can, I could do this for a day, like Thanksgiving or Christmas, but I have a husband who likes to drink, and he's, you know, he's, he is not going to stop, and he's going to be drinking probably every day, like right under my nose. So how am I going to deal with?" These, you know, these kind of triggers. I mean, it's going to be right there. People say, get rid of all the alcohol, get it all out of your house. Well, that wasn't an option for me. So I was, I was concerned about that, and I said, you know, I've got a very unique situation here. And she's like, honey, it's not unique. There's a lot of women in the program that have uh, husbands who drink, and it's just you, you're going to have to just figure out how to deal with it. And you're going to have to do it by uh, just we're going to have to beef up your sobriety. You're going to have to learn to live among the triggers and know what they are and know that you, you just you, drinking is off the table and you're going to have to live through these triggers. So on one hand, I was being told that, you know, to avoid people, places, and things and change things. But when you don't have that option, you really have no choice but to sort of walk through it and um, you know, reinforce your sobriety. And so I had to really look at what was behind these triggers. And 
like the triggers are really it's like your mind is your mind somewhere along the line has has lived through these certain certain things that have have brought on fear and then the the solution was to drink or to to snack or to do other things but you know in my case to eat and i mean to drink so i um had to learn what to I had to learn what was bringing on, what was bringing on these triggers. What was what was my mind doing? And it was basically that the mind is very active, especially in an alcoholic. And there's always this fear underneath, and and we don't even know that it's fear we're feeling. We just see something and we're like, boom, let's let's drink. But we, what we what I had to really do was dial things back and just look at what was triggering me and what was the fear behind it. And so I had to really look at all that and try to just kind of calm myself down when I was triggered in situations where I'm not able to avoid those triggers. So that's kind of just been my my recovery as in the past five years is just, you know, if I can avoid something and it's not something that uh, I have to do or someplace I have to be or somebody I have to be around, I go ahead and avoid it. But at the same time, I really was interested in sort of re- re-entering into society and not really hiding out and hiding from alcohol and hiding from life. I really wanted to just, I wanted to have a really muscular sobriety and recovery in order to be able to live among these triggers. Hello? Elizabeth, this, this is Catherine. So I'm just, I'm, there's so much here the process, I definitely agree with you that looking for the fear has been such a huge part of it for me. Um, Does that just fear seems to be underlying every single bad reaction or bad emotion that I feel like I'm having at any time. So if I look for the fear under the anger or the anxiety or whatever it is, um, that usually helps me to start kind of, you know, getting myself out of it. But when you say you had to dial things back. So how did you go about kind of getting getting quiet with that to, so you could really parse everything that was happening? It was a process. I mean, with with me, I had to really, I had to actually go through each thing like that was happening. Like if I was, if I was triggered or I was upset about something um, and I wanted to drink, which is basically the same thing, I guess, but... Like I would, right. I would. It was it was a really slow process for me because I wasn't I, I wasn't familiar with being afraid or or knowing what fear was. Like I mean, like when I was afraid of something, I would turn into like a drama queen, or I would do you know I would I would drink or do something because it was just my mind wanted to change the channel, and so I put on mm. the drama channel or the booze channel, like anything. I did not want to even admit that I was afraid because I was afraid of even admitting it. So mm-hmm. every time that I got upset and I talked to my sponsor and we talked it out, there was always some, it was like because my mind was churning on some sort of fear. Something was something was making me afraid. Um, I was afraid of losing something. I was afraid of of getting something, afraid of just Lots of lots of. I mean, I was a, I was a, an afraid person. I was a fearful person. Yeah. I remember before I stopped drinking, I was sitting with a bunch of friends, and it was a very quiet like breakfast, like 
uh, you know, like everybody was just calmly just like laughing or telling stories and it was not a like a, a scary moment. And I just looked around the table and I said, is anybody else just absolutely scared out of their mind right now? And they're like, what? And it was just, that was, <laughs> that was, it, I was just afraid of everything, afraid of life. And, and meanwhile, everyone so, on this line right now is like me. I was afraid. Uh, yeah, yeah, I get it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, this is Amanda. So, I, I I think everything was a trigger for me in early sobriety. I for sure, we get get where you were coming from. Um, yeah, so just, I mean specific um, triggers like it was just you know there were just places I wanted to avoid and and people I wanted to avoid, but it was uh, it just was more it just was so insidious. You know, because it was just more and more things were triggery. You know, <laughs> so I just I was like, you know what? I'm just uncomfortable. Like I'm just uncomfortable. I need I need to work this stuff out because mm-hmm. I can't just like hide or or leave like every you know like every trigger. I couldn't just go and hide or or run away. It's like I had to just figure out wh- what is this? Like why is my brain switching channels? Um, which may be just another show. <laughs> and it's funny because they taught us. Um, I was in a, a, a one of the things. You know, though you're you're talking about some real life. You know, like big situations, the holidays and stuff like that. And I remember when I was in my outpatient program, we weren't allowed to have cans of soda um, because you couldn't crack a can because that was a trigger for some people. So it's it's little mm-hmm. things too. Um, and, you know, there's there's really just a lot of things that you need to um, pay attention to and be aware of ahead of time and, um, you know, just things to think about, like what does trigger me and then have a game plan and in mind on, you know, or, you know, avoid those things when possible. Like, you know, um, I know one thing for me was my drink of choice, one of my one of my drinks of choices was um, soda water, uh, uh, vodka, uh, excuse me, raspberry vodka with soda and a splash of cran. And so for a while, um, just to be on the safe side, I didn't have soda water with cranberry juice because I was like, oh, that might be a trigger too. Um, so there's, there's, I think there's both um, situational triggers and also physical triggers. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if any anyone else has experienced that. Um, uh, Ellie, how about you? What are some things that you found to be triggery or some things that you needed to avoid? Well, it's interesting because it t- we'll get into this later on in the show, so I won't go into too much detail, but the difference between what you were just describing, like the I, like uh, what I think of as an emotional trigger versus an environmental one, and um, one of the things that really bothered me in early sobriety was the sound of ice cubes clinking in a glass. And oh, so, and it, which is really weird because I, at the, especially at the end of my drinking, there was no pouring it into a glass and putting ice in it. It was not like a sexy thing. I was drinking it straight out of the bottle. You know, it wasn't like it, it reminded me of my own drinking. It just reminded me of drinking in general. Um, another, and, I, and there were also places where I would be triggered to drink, like airports, things like that were definitely triggers. But I also was very cognizant of patterns and times of day or things that would um, become an automatic trigger, like when the clock would reach a certain hour, like 5 or 5.30, when I would 
start to get into drinking, and I needed to be doing something else. I couldn't just be in my house rattling around because even if I wasn't actually drinking, I was thinking about it. So I discovered that I could be triggered to want to drink, and, and I wouldn't drink, but I would just be sitting I'd be sitting around thinking, oh, it's 5 o'clock and here's me not drinking. So at 5 o'clock, I needed to be <laughs> on a walk or I needed to be on the phone with a friend or doing something that would engage my brain until I could like sort of reprogram my brain to hit those times of day or be in those situations um, and, and not drink. Because, like, you know, as a lot of women and, and particularly moms and moms who work from home or stay at home, you know, I, I wasn't a barroom drinker. I drank in my kitchen, so I have to be in my kitchen. I can't not be in my house, but I could definitely find new things to do um, that wouldn't remind me of that. I also, you know, the laundry, the whole laundry system was a favorite hiding place of mine, from the hamper to the washing machine to the dryer, because my husband never touched the laundry at all. I can tell you the mountains of laundry that piled up in front of my house. <laughs> but I also I went and I got a new hamper. Like is the old one just remind you know I I tried to just change things around that when I saw them, and and then I would have a, a trigger that would just make me feel bad. Like looking at my hamper, my old hamper where I used to hide the wine, wouldn't make me want to drink. But I'd be like, oh my god, who puts wine in a hamper? Like the the more sober I got, the sicker <laughs> I was in my own head. You know. So I just changed the environment. I moved furniture around in rooms. I mean, I I just tried to make everything feel sort of scrubbed new to kind of reset my mind to remind myself this is a new path that I'm on. And those are that's what I would describe more as situational triggers. We can, we'll talk about emotional triggers later. But um, oftentimes I couldn't even figure out what the triggers were until they were happening to me. And then I would think, mm. okay, well, what can I do differently? Because the strangest things would set me off bath time for my kids. I never realized that I gave my one-year-old a bath every night with a glass of wine in my hand until I went to give him a bath and I felt like somebody had chopped my arm off. You know, I, something was really <laughs> yeah. missing from that experience. And I remember mm-hmm. feeling a real fear. I have to go through an entire bath with my kid and not drink wine. You know, and, and it's, mm-hmm. it, eventually those feelings went completely away. But in early sobriety, they're very loud and very noisy. And yeah. I did not not bathe my child, by the way. I mean, I just figured out. I asked my husband <laughs> to do it, or we took a shower and said it was something different. Or sometimes you just do it, and every time you do it, it's a notch on your belt to say, okay, you know, it turns out I can give my child a bath without drinking. I, you know, it's not nearly as entertaining, but I did it, and I can do it again. But they're weird little things and you, know that you don't always anticipate. That story, it just as you're talking, Ellie, it's making me think, too, how you said, like, you know, you're sitting there going, okay, it's 5 o'clock, I want a drink. Okay, it's, I'm giving the kids a bath, look at me doing this without a drink. And I I remember in the first really, I don't know, 9, 10, 11, 12 months going, am I ever going to stop? I wasn't, I didn't want to drink, but I felt like I was thinking about recovery and sobriety and therefore drinking all the time. And I thought that yes. was just me until I heard other people say that too, where they were like, it's getting kind of annoying to think about recovery all the time. Do I have to think yeah. about it all the time? And th- my answer now that I have a, a little more time than that uh, is sort of, but maybe not kind of as on the second <laughs> as I did for the Definitely. first year. So it's like it starts off early on sort of thinking, trigger, trigger, I don't want to drink, I don't want to drink. But then 
once I kind of got past that, it was still sort of annoying because I felt like I was just thinking about not drinking and how not to do it and how to be in recovery and am I doing this right? So I just kind of wanted to throw that out there because I thought I was the only one and then other people said that they felt that too. It does take up less and less mental space and it can be very freeing. Like I can remember the first time I drove by my favorite liquor store and didn't notice it. And then maybe two minutes later, I noticed that I didn't notice it. And I was like, that you yes, didn't notice you know, it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> baby steps, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is Amanda. I actually think it, it, I, I felt exactly the same way. And everything was like, look at me. This is me doing this, not drinking. Look at me. Like, but, and, and I thought I was, you know, like we talk about like I felt like I deserved a parade. And, you know, mm-hmm. then someone says, like, yes. oh, yeah, look at you just doing what most people do every day. And I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> oh, I can't say that on the show. I had some choice thoughts for this. <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, but look at me doing this. You know, do you have any idea that I, because I literally did nothing, nothing without yeah. alcohol. What was it? I was, there was something, oh, I went to see Christmas lights last night, of course. I went, I went after Christmas because there was no way I was waiting in line, and I still did. But so I went to the shrine nearby that had like all these beautiful lights and I was I was actually walking around so here I am like four and a half years sober walking around going look at me walking around I was looking at Christmas lights without a drink in my hand because there's <laughs> no way I wouldn't have had a roadie there's no way <laughs> if you had gone at all right yeah if well, I Amanda, had gone I at remember- all and I- I actually lit a candle and I like you know kind of honored the shrine instead of just like boozing it up and looking at Christmas lights. <laughs> that makes me think of another thing too about how important it is to have somebody who does understand how important that is to call or talk to. Because Amanda, when you were newly sober, I remember you calling me one time all excited because you had mowed your lawn without a beer, and <laughs> you had you had said like I just did yard work without drinking. And you were, we were laughing about it. You're like, it turns out yard work's kind of boring, but, you know, I got a lot done, you know. <laughs> but to be able to call somebody and get that little parade, get that pat on the back of somebody like, go you, you know, you're living your life. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so I do think it's important to reward ourselves. And like you said, reaching out to someone else, is it is, because no one else will understand, like, how huge – some of the things that we do in early recovery are like getting through these little things and acknowledging them. Good truth. They are huge. Yeah. Well, I want to hear, Catherine, I want to hear about your triggers, but let me, I guess let me just define, um, you know, just, um, just, uh, you know, kind of what the definition is just for, you know, for in case we don't cover it in all of our shares. But so external triggers, like Libby said, include people, places, and things and situations that spark a desire for us to use after a period of abstinence. Some examples are um, for people, a a friend in college who you drank with every night calls you up to hang out, or a colleague at work tells you the girls are all going out to the nail salon that serves wine after work. Um, Your partner wants to have a romantic dinner, which always included a bottle of wine. Um, places, you're invited to go to a bar or a club that you drank at often after work, or a friend invites you to her house where you always drank, um, and as Ellie said, you drive past the liquor store where you always got your favorite bottle of wine. Um, things, some examples are an unopened bottle of wine in the refrigerator. Uh, you buy your favorite cheese at the supermarket that you always enjoyed with a nice bottle of wine. Uh, you see a pill bottle lying on the counter of a, at a friend's house. And situations. Now, we just got through the trifecta. They say um, in recovery, they say 
um, alcoholism is a threefold disease: Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. So we're yeah. we've, mm-hmm. we're through two out of the three. Uh, but those situations are the holidays, New Year's, Christmas, Fourth of July, Super Bowl, definitely Halloween. We hear lots of stories, as Libby was talking about. You know, I remember that going around trick or treating with a uh, bottle or a drink in my hand. Um, even though I don't have children, I went with other people that had children so that I could, you know, partake. <laughs> Certain times of the day, after work, before sleep, a lot of us used to drink to go to sleep, including myself, and significant events, loss of job, loss of a loved one. And um, so then internal triggers involve our thoughts, emotions, or physical sensations. Some examples include um, emotions, anger, anxiety, sadness, pressure, stress. And I actually, they didn't have this there, but I added joy and excitement because those Mm -hmm. were triggers for me i didn't i wasn't just a uh angry drinker i was a happy drinker so it was kind of any thought would actually trigger me to want to drink um mm-hmm. thoughts if i don't drink i won't maybe be able to fit in uh i won't be able to have fun anymore without booze or i can handle it this time and physical sensations back pain, uh back pain headaches no energy illness I actually was just sick, and I was reminded that that is a huge trigger for me, both for drinking and smoking. For some reason, I, I guess I thought I felt bad, so I might as well feel worse. I don't. I never understood that, but um, being sick always triggered me. And um, some of the most common thoughts or actions that can lead to a relapse are becoming overconfident, feeling full of self-pity, unreal expectations for recovery, lying in other forms of dishonesty, Symptoms of depression, feelings of frustration in recovery, expecting too much of other people. You know, we know about expectations. Uh, mm-hmm. Taking recovery for granted, and that's that's a huge one, um, which actually, Catherine, you brought up very well. You know, we don't, uh, when you get a little time, you don't necessarily think about the fact that you're not drinking every moment, but you still have to think about the fact that you don't drink. Um, Mm -hmm. taking recovery for granted is very dangerous Mm -hmm. abusing other substances and halt we talk about that a lot being hungry, angry, lonely or tired and so when a trigger fires this can lead people to catastrophe they may feel terrified, frustrated or hopeless believe that they are failing in their efforts to stay clean and sober and abandon the process with thoughts like what's the point, I I just can't do this Learning to identify your specific trigger can help to counteract these unhealthy reactions and begin to develop an action plan to address them directly. So, Catherine, um, can you uh, just kind of outline some ideas for uh, how to avoid relapse triggers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no reason why people should relapse as a result of any of these triggers, even though they can in the moment really feel overwhelming and So here are just a few ways that we can avert catastrophe. The first step is being aware of the different relapse triggers. Most of them are easily dealt with. For example, if the person feels hungry, they can just eat something. Or if they feel lonely, they could visit a fellowship meeting or reach out to another person in recovery. In order to be aware of these relapse triggers, the individual needs to be looking for them. It is too easy for people to slip towards relapse without even noticing what is happening. Maybe we can talk about that more. That's, a, mm-hmm. that's an interesting one. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it can be a good idea to keep a recovery journal that the person updates on a daily basis. And so this way they'll be better able to spot the warning signs or negative pattern that has developed. Techniques such as mindfulness meditation are really great for helping people to get to understand their inner landscape better. And this means that the individual will have more insight into their own behavior and thought processes, so they'll be less likely to be caught unawares. So long as the priority of the individual is staying sober, they should never need fall victim of any of these relapse triggers. So the trouble really starts with people who take their eye off the ball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Catherine, did, um, did what are some, what have been some triggers for you, or what are some things that you are keep on the lookout for? Yeah. Well, I was thinking back to I think it was probably my second week into recovery, and I was sitting at my office, and it was about five o'clock was coming around, and I felt just this really overwhelming urge, like I can't wait to get out of here, I can't wait to go drink. And against my usual behavior, I actually reached out to some people in recovery, which is something that I'm still learning how to do, and it doesn't come naturally to many of us. We hear that a lot. You know, I don't want to reach out to people, and I certainly wasn't used to asking for help. But I said, no, this would be ridiculous to – I have, you know, whatever it was. I had about two weeks. And somebody said – well, there were two things that I learned that night. One was – get up and walk around, walk backwards, do a jumping jack, like just do anything to kind of create that pause or just take an action just to get moving. So I stood up and I walked out of my office and I just pretended I had to get something at the printer, which is all the way over the office floor. And so I just kind of walked there stopped to talk to some people, coworkers on the way back. And by the time I got back to my office, I was like, oh, wow, how interesting. It only took however long. It was only, you know, 30 seconds or a couple minutes or whatever. And the feeling had completely passed. And that was really amazing to me. So that was something that I learned early on. And then that same night was when somebody taught me about halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And this is one that I've actually talked about on the show before. So, One of the um, interesting things I'm learning about my trauma recovery is that I have never really learned how to be inside my body. So I don't don't have good awareness of my signals, like when I'm hungry. So all of a sudden, I'll be like completely bananas. Like, have you ever heard that term being hangry? Like, that's me. You know, I'm like a toddler because I don't realize that I haven't eaten for hours and hours. And and especially when I was actively drinking, like I just wouldn't eat. I never got proper sleep and it was like crazy. So now in recovery. So anyway, well, when somebody said a look for halt, I was like, wow, I have realized now that like 90% of my anxiety, which is one of the things that I drank over actually results from, crummy self-care of my body so like hungry and tired are actually gigantic so it's it's something I even just talked to my partner about this the other day and I just said to him like this this 2015 is the year of like me learning to be in my body because I let myself go too long because he wasn't around I said oh I'll wait for him before I eat and that was 
a poor choice. <laughs> I said that to him. Yeah. I'm like, you have, I need you to be my accountability partner because I have to learn to feed myself. But anyway, so that that was something huge that I figured out kind of, again, when I learned that, I was like, wow, I had never heard that before. And um, it's something that I really that I really keep in mind. It's amazing how sometimes the simplest solutions can be so powerful. <laughs> a nap is yeah. another one. If I get Honestly, tired, and I, I get tired and I can't cope with anything, anything. Oh, my God, I'm like a toddler. I shut down. I go crazy. And and I I can overcomplicate the most simple thing, believe me. I mean, I will find a way to make it more complicated. And actually, I, I the other night, I, I kind of came home and I was really feeling like, just like you're saying, Ellie, like I can't do anything. And I was felt like I had 10 million things to do. And really the solution was like, stop, take a shower, and put on your jammies. And then mm-hmm. evaluate what really has to get done at this second before you go to bed. And so it's kind of turning out that self-care has to be the first, the pause is first you know, stopping myself and then going into self-care and that often self-care can involve reaching out to somebody in sobriety too. Um, But, and the the other thing in, in that pause, and I've talked about this a lot on the show, but I'll just mention it again, was kind of getting into that really honest thinking and asking myself that question, is this true? So when I would think I'm so overwhelmed, I can't deal with fill in the blank right now is this true? No. You know, or you, you listed one of, this was one of my, my famous ones that I always told myself was like, how am I supposed to go out to dinner with my husband and not have a drink, especially if he's drinking or with friends or at a work dinner or something like that. Like I have to have a drink. Is that true? No. Um, so that stopping myself and, and asking, actively asking myself that question, which I did a lot in early recovery um, really helped me get over the hump and to just sort of snap out of it. It's just almost like a little like snap, you know, like turn the, turn the page, you know, to mm-hmm. get a new thought. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that you bring that up, Catherine, too, because this is something I've been working on in individual therapy outside of a recovery program. But as an alcoholic, I, and, and um, Elizabeth articulated this, I love, Elizabeth, how you talked about the changing the channel. And as an active alcoholic, yes. I was just accustomed to, like, I have a bad thought or a bad feeling, and I would do something about it. I would drink. I would change it. And so I got really programmed to thinking that a thought or a feeling was a reality and needed to be acted on. And having the difference between now in recovery, having a thought or a feeling, and you know, having that pause and that question, you know, how is this actually real? Like my thoughts, feelings, my feelings were facts. I mean, if I felt sad, I am sad. Everything is sad. It needs mm. to be changed. That that mm-hmm. I don't have to act on every single feeling. And because I like to do, I like to do something about it. I don't want to feel X, Y, or Z. And I was like, for years, I had this, what I perceived as this magic elixir that would just change it for me. And the antithesis of that is sitting in it for a second or walking around and waiting for the feeling to pass or doing something differently. Um, it's astonishing how much when we're in early recovery, that just doesn't even occur to us because we need to, we need to fix this. Right. We need to do something about it. And, and we don't. 
it's you know it might be uncomfortable or painful for a little while, but it won't. I mean, I I like many of us do. If I had a bad thought or a bad feeling, I just would sort of think, okay, this is just the way I'm going to be forever now. You know, I would just not even occur to me that it, if I could just give it time. But if I had a good feeling or a good thought, I'd be like, oh, when's the other shoe going to fall? This won't last. You know, it's it takes a long mm-hmm. time to reprogram our brains to have a little faith in the process and in the fact that time, even increments of time like a minute can make a big difference. Yes, absolutely. I actually use um, that your, your um, concept of is this true, Catherine, with my codependency issues too because that's where my mind really goes really crazy and that's actually a really dangerous thing for me because that those are the really a, a lot of alcoholics are codependents as well and that went you know hand, that goes hand in hand with a lot of my drinking so um i find that to be very my thoughts can really be out of control and i i i do that all the time and it actually reminded, you know, that actually reminds me, we, I know we talked about it on a show a long time ago and um, talked about thought watching. And I think, Ellie, you explained that process to me, and I actually did it. And it goes with that, um, the one that I, that you read off, Catherine, about techniques such as mindfulness and, you know, that the, in, the individual might have more insight to their own behavior and thought processes, um, which in being that way can, you know, prevent you from having a relapse, like watching your thoughts, like are my thoughts going yeah. control, like paying attention to what your brain, like what your mind is saying to you, you know, like, oh, um, I, you know, I'm I'm a piece of crap or whatever, you know, and I don't fit in, so, you know, if I, but if I have a drink, I can, you know, I can fit in, and that's like a real um, obvious uh, thought, um, process, but there's other thoughts that we have too. I don't know if any of you have had, um, you know, that you know where mindfulness has helped you. I just, I just thought that was something good to dig into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How about you, Libby? Um, you kind of touched on that. Elizabeth here. Um, oh, am I interrupting someone? No, oh, go no, right no, ahead. Elizabeth, sorry. Okay. Okay. Um, I was just uh, on the subject of thought watching. Um, I uh, like similar to that um, because my one of my you know my triggers were really my tr- triggers were mostly fear based, um, and I was afraid. That's what Ellie was saying, like about how just you know like your just a thought could make you think that like you're really that the, the the fearful thing is really happening. Like you just you're already like living it, even though it may not even like ever happen or whatever. So. Um, one of the things I would do is I, I to try to just be less fearful is to just really face down like and and walk like um, see like go through like till the play it out to the very end like what would happen if if this this thing that I'm afraid of would actually happen how would I react and like how would you know how would I get through it and and it would just I would just you know if it was like if it was something really terrible like a you know like a life threatening thing I would be like what you know what's going to ha- you know like what what would what would my body would probably go into shock and I wouldn't really have to live that horrible thing that I'm afraid of you know or just there'd be like some sort of relief um because you know just something to talk myself down from like what it what if like this horrible horrible thing happened so um that was just a the mind was just to just try to you know like play that thing of uh, that I'm fearing 
way out to the end and see if I could if I could handle it, you know, like it, and and if I could, then I could just kind of put it aside. And I know, and sometimes, you know, if I'm feeling spiritual, I can like hand it over. But if I'm not feeling spiritual and I just want to see if I can figure it out myself, that was just a technique of mine. Well, Elizabeth, love, this is I, Catherine, I almost I almost feel like the the playing it through to the end is a way of handing it over, right? Because it just sort of says this isn't really happening to me. Let's, let's play it through to the end. And it's like that old Mark Twain quote that goes something like, you know, all kinds of bad things have happened to me and some of them have actually come true. Whatever he said that way. You know, like, yeah. Catastrophizing. Yeah. Uh, my, I work with a sponsor who says to me all the time when I'm doing this, and I usually do this kind of thinking with relationships of some kind, you know, those conversations that I have with people who aren't there. And by the time I reach that, you know, I'll say, you know, I say this and she'll say that and then I'll say this. And I've, and I've figured the whole thing out in my own head and it's always a disaster. Yeah. And I'll be uh-huh. talking to her about it. And she calls it like the so what therapy because I'll say these things or she'll call it either so what or what then. You know, so what? I'll say, well, then this will happen. Uh-huh. Well, so what? What then? Well, then this will happen. Okay, mm-hmm. well, what then? And she just takes me to the point where I can realize just how, you know, either patently ridiculous it is or the fact that, you know what, it, it's not going to not gonna kill me. And I've actually been in a situation where I have gotten some life-threatening news. And, you know, guess what? I, you get through it because you. there's it, also the power of the, back to the mindfulness and the awareness piece of it, like, and I'm referring specifically to when I was told that I had cancer. And in my head, I was dying, like not only dying but dead. Like I, like I thought, like this is it. I'm going to die. I am dying. I am dead. Like in my head, it just went right to the fear scale, which is a perfectly natural response, of course. But eventually, to be able to step back and be like, well, am I dead right now? No. You know, am I dying mm-hmm. right now? Well, no. You know, just so, part, taking things down, parsing them down to like this minute second-by-second second moment where I'm not actually living in my body as or thinking in my mind as if it's the worst thing is actually happening, because it isn't, not yet. And 99.9% of the time, the things that I am catastrophizing don't come true, which is something, you know, sometimes you have to live through some stuff to realize it, but I found myself saying that to my daughter the other day, that the other expression I love is, you know, 99% of our fears don't actually happen, and it's it's true. They don't. Um, mm-hmm. So when I can kind of let go, be be mindful and aware, and stay in the moment, then it's like I can handle this second, and now I can handle this second, and then eventually mm-hmm. enough seconds go by and things change. Yeah, yeah, I, and I also think like even if you know you can actually see something unfolding, and you know, I've learned a lot about letting go and just letting things unfold as they're supposed to. Um, I'm not always good at it, but I really try with it. And when you see something actually going the way you don't want it to go, um, one thing I find helpful, too, is to say, you know, I've gotten through harder things. I can get through this, too. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not, you know, you, I can get through this. And, and not, you know, drinking is not going to help anything with this. Yeah, then I'll have the problem and be drunk, and that's you know, which yeah. comes through, even even with a tiny bit of recovery that you don't have to have years to understand how, you know, I I remember having this insight really profoundly at about ninety days of sobriety, thinking, you know, it never actually fixed anything. It just made me feel like it was, and I you know it, 
when I was active and had been active for years, I couldn't see it that way. I really thought the alcohol was the medicine. It was the thing that was mm-hmm. actually improving the situation, and it wasn't improving it because there was never enough and nothing yeah. ever got fixed. <coughs> I actually used some positive um, thoughts with that, too. You just reminded me of something. I would say, you know, something would happen, and I'd go, well, that would have been a whole hell of a lot worse if I was drinking right now. You know, mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it, I think over time you learn that, you know, the the stuff that happens in our life, because life does happen, life goes on, you know, things are going to continue to happen as they were before. Um, you know, if, if you take a look at the situation and, and, again, like, acknowledge, like, wow, that would have been a lot worse if I had been drinking, you know, um, and, you know, so thank God I'm not. You know, I think that positive reinforcement is really important mm-hmm. um, every yeah. step. Of the day. I just, I was so really, again, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Was somebody going to speak? No, go ahead. I, I just wanted to jump in. I won't take a lot of time on this, but I wanted to mention too, because I'm listening to that list of things that you're, that we're talking about with internal and external triggers and coming from it at a point of, for people who have some sobriety and then are slipping towards relapse and one of the things I want to emphasize in this show is that this awareness and this sort of um, mindfulness and conscientiousness about triggers, it is actually a practice. You know, I, I think one of the things I learned is after relapsing after five years of sobriety was to look back and see that that um, the behaviors and the thoughts and the feelings that I had started to get off the beam so far before I actually picked up a drink, and it's very subtle and it's very insidious and Certainly taking recovery for granted is one of them. You know, it wasn't like I was thinking about that a drink would fix anything, but I started behaving impulsively. I started behaving compulsively, obsessively. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't eating well. My self-care fell off. I mean, all the same things that happen when they first get sober, they happen in reverse as I was sliding towards relapse. And so having just a, a small practice of, you know, some some people will pray in the morning or give thanks for their sobriety or they'll keep a diary or a gratitude list or some kind of daily practice that just keeps it in the forefront of our brains that, you know, if we aren't vigilant about the fact that we're sober and that we're alcoholics but that we're in recovery, that the complacency seeps in in really, really, really subtle ways. And one of the things that they asked me to do when I was in detox this most recent time, and it was very eye-opening and it's an exercise I recommend, they had us take a piece of paper and put two columns and on one column they had internal triggers and the other um, column they had external triggers and the external triggers were very easy and then they said so we listed a bunch of common external triggers like Thanksgiving, Christmas you know, Halloween, work events you know, dinner with my spouse whatever and then they had a list of common internal triggers, fear, grief sadness, boredom, anxiety and they said put a check mark next to the things that are triggers for you that you're aware of And after I had had some sobriety, I had really figured out tools to handle the external triggers, people, places, and things. You know, I knew how to avoid certain events or certain people or certain things that would trigger me. So I didn't have very many check marks on the external trigger side. I had every single internal trigger checked. And what it showed me is that I had done a lot of work on fixing situations. I mean, I could control where I put myself and who I put myself around but my inner landscape needed a lot of work. And the big difference for me with that was therapy, finding safe medication, looking at things that were part of my anxiety and my depression and my grief and my PTSD and 
those things, um, you know, they're inside of us. We can't just be somewhere else or avoid what we drank to avoid our internal landscape. And so really honoring those internal triggers and making a list and coming up with an action plan for how I'm going to handle those triggers differently was mind-boggling to me. Even after years of sobriety, I had never really, I guess, honored the fact those are very, very powerful and um, you know, they they needed something more than just a 12-step program or reaching out to a community. I mean, these are things I really needed to work on inside myself, and those are the triggers that eventually brought me to relapse. So it, it's oversimplifying somewhat to say in early sobriety, I really focused a lot on external triggers because that's the most obvious and it's something that we can fix right away. But as my recovery progressed, focusing on the internal triggers became more and more important. It's not something I recommend mm-hmm. tackling right away because it usually involves some pretty intensive stuff and some old wounds and some things that are lifelong issues for me, like anxiety. But with you know, after a little time, because I hadn't addressed those, those were the things that snuck up on me and, and took me down in the long run. And uh, so hopefully that you know, just a little exercise people can think of to kind of maintain that mindfulness. Really look hard at both your external and inter- internal landscapes. And then, you know, eventually realize that you can come up with an action plan. You don't need to be owned by any of these things over time. Absolutely. Yeah, and and I think finding finding that pause, Elizabeth said something that, like, sometimes you feel more spiritual than others. And I want to give a little uh, holiday shout-out to the serenity prayer, which saved my bacon mm. on, Chris, on Christmas. Um and I know that especially in early recovery, it's like, oh, my God, if one more person says to turn it over or to say the serenity prayer, like, what is that? Gonna, you've clearly never met my family, right? And But this time I'm sitting at the Christmas Eve dinner table and every single person there, including myself, was just driving me crazy. I was like, I can't believe I'm here. I hate it. I was agitated. I was anxious. I was supremely uncomfortable. And I found myself thinking if only every single person at this table were acting different than they are, I would be fine. (laughs) I had that thought. And then that little voice in my head, and this is because I talk to sober people every single day and I attend recovery meetings almost every single day, I said to myself, I heard someone say, why don't you try the serenity prayer? So I said it. Well, isn't that something? Not one person at the table changed except for me. Mm-hmm. And I and it, it almost immediately worked where my agitation and irritation and self-righteous, whatever was going on with me, kind of went away. And everybody was doing their thing. And, yeah, they're wacky. And everybody's wacky. Everyone's family is wacky. I don't know why we think we're so different. Or why, I don't know why I think I'm so different. Um, and I ended up having a great time. And mm-hmm. so I just, I was sort of laughing at myself like, well, what do you know? That old <laughs> saw works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the serenity mm-hmm. prayer. <laughs> it does. And it's Elizabeth, funny for our was, listeners out oh, there. I, I just want to add for our listeners out there who don't know the Serenity Prayer, definitely look it up. It, it's not necessarily a religious prayer. It's called the Serenity Prayer, and it is a prayer. But it's very non-denominational. It's not, and it, it, it does say God. But 
I have to say, I think in early sobriety, I said that about 100 times a day. And I still say it every morning and every night. And I definitely find myself saying it during at some point during the day. And it's Amanda, just, why don't why don't you say it in case somebody listening doesn't isn't familiar with it? Sure, it's a, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And then we close it with Thy will not mine be done. And that's another key thing, like, thy will not mind be done. That's my thing to just let it go. And who, whoever thy is doesn't matter to me, you know, because I'm not a religious person. Um, I, you know, I, I do think I've become spiritual, but it's just not my will. Just It's just going to come out just the way it, it, it's supposed to, and it helps. I can't, I can't even tell you how much it helps. Yeah, get me out of my own way, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Elizabeth, Ellie, I had a question for you. This is Elizabeth? Ellie. Yeah, Elizabeth, I was just curious because, I mean, you you have longer-term sobriety than a lot of the guests that we have on the show and has been, been talking about the natures of these triggers and things. H- have you noticed that the things that trigger you have evolved or changed over time, or do you find that the same ones that plagued you more in an early sobriety continue to be triggers? Or how is it kind of, has it morphed for you over time? I'd be curious to hear about that. They definitely um, quieted down. Um, I uh, I would say that if I if I really had to pick one thing that that where I go, you know what I could use a drink right now would be like when like the first sunny day in April. You know, like the, you know, like when I think that summer for me was always just a happy drinking time until alcohol stopped working for me. But like it's just burned into my brain that like summer and drinking are great you know until I can actually sit down and say all right that it's not really true you know it was uh it worked for a while not anymore so so that that first like warm day I just kind of get like a little shock wave and then I'm like and then I talk myself back out of it and realize that it's you know it's 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 a mirage like it's not real um but uh a lot of the other a lot of the triggers have have gone away because i've i've really sort of worked through um what's happening in my brain and just try and i'm able to just see it for what it is and know that um you know it's 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 not that i want to drink it's that i'm i'm uncomfortable right now why am i uncomfortable what can i you know what what needs you know what's re- as uh Catherine was saying, like, what's real and what's what's not. Like, is, is this is this am I really is this am I justified in being uncomfortable or nervous or is this you know some thought in my head and I just have to work through it. But um, the triggers really do subside if you if you work on yourself because uh, you know you you just you have to make a choice whether you want to be um, a, you know you want to be a dry drunk you know and just have the alcohol removed or if you want to do some work. And be comfortable. And, you know, mm-hmm. I told my sponsor early on, I, I want to be comfortable. Like, I just don't want to be, I don't want to be a dry drunk. So mm-hmm. a lot of these triggers really disappear when you when you work on yourself and you identify what is really happening. Like, what, the, what is the mind trying to pull right now? That's a good way of saying so, it. Um, I, I love that you said that to your sponsor. I, I told her the exact same thing. That I, I think I might have said uh-huh. I just want to be at peace, 
And her response was, okay, mm-hmm. great, you can totally do that, but you have to be, you know, if I said I wanted to be comfortable, she said, awesome, great goal, but you're going to have to be uncomfortable first. And mm-hmm. part of that yeah, was kind yeah, of an yeah. acceptance yeah. of like, okay, uncomfortable mm-hmm. won't kill me. It's just going to feel like it is, but it's not going to. And and I just, I mean, even in sobriety, I did so many things to avoid uncomfortable and a lot of them mm-hmm. even looked healthy, you know, throwing myself into other people too much or throwing myself into work too much or throwing, you know, just avoidance behavior. But the minute I was okay with uncomfortable for a while, that's when the comfort started to settle down. And so it's almost it's almost like embracing a trigger. It's not like I was going to drink over it, but I was kind of getting okay with not being okay and anesthetizing mm-hmm. myself a little bit to the concept of discomfort. Um, because it, yeah. it does take work. You said that well, Elizabeth. I mean, it's not it, this is not something that we can snap our fingers and get. But you know, all things that have great rewards usually involve that kind of work, and it, it it's encouraging yeah. it for me, and I think to our listeners also to hear from you that, and Catherine and Amanda, all of whom have longer term sobriety too. It's that it does if we're willing to do the work, which is is great news. Yes, absolutely. That's awesome. Thank you. Can I can I raise one last thing too? It's something Elizabeth said sparked an idea in my head, and we've talked about you know holidays and weddings are another one that come up, and and I remember trying to get sober, and I hear this a lot from people that are still drinking but want sobriety, but there's that whole like, but what about my wedding, or what about my cousin's wedding, or what about that vacation to Italy I wanted to take? It's almost like being triggered before you've even stopped drinking, that kind of thing. Yes. Um, uh-huh. That that. These kinds of triggers are so powerful that these this mindset that we have that alcohol has to be infused into these occasions and these feelings and thoughts that we have that I mean people who aren't even in sobriety are actually experiencing them, and that's where for me, pulling it back into the moment, well, am I in Italy right now? No, am I at that wedding right now? No, like being able to pull it back into the day and saying, "You know, I'll cross mm-hmm. that bridge when I get to it, but not allowing that to be a barrier to try for sobriety. Because you know these, we, mm-hmm. all of your stories are living testimony to the fact that these things are not just survivable, but all, able to be enjoyed more in recovery. Um, but we hang our hat so much on trying to control how those things are going to go or how we need to be experiencing those things, and it's so much easier if we're just able to let it unfold the way it's supposed to in recovery. Because yeah. so, then, you, then you guys would have to listen to me talk about the fact that I was sober at my wedding and went to Italy and on my honeymoon and all this stuff, <laughs> sober. So, you did it. You, know, you had an awesome time. I, I always it can be it, done. But it's like, but I always said that to myself, like, oh, I couldn't possibly, you know, oh, I can't get sober now because I have blah, blah, blah coming up. And, you know, there's always mm-hmm. going to be blah, 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 good or there's bad. There's always going to so. be something. Yep. I heard a woman I, in my um, at my treatment center. She was really funny. She, we were talking about triggers and one of our groups, and we were saying she's like, I could drink over anything, and she's like, I wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and be like, Oh look, I have a face. I'm gonna drink. <laughs> like anything could happen, or it's a day that ends in Y, or it's raining, or it's not raining, or something happened, or nothing happened. There's always gonna be something that we're saying we need to have a drink over. But I think about that sometimes. I look in the mirror that she would drink because she had a face. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. It's so true. I actually, someone said a line in a meeting, what was it? Um, if you're thinking about your last drink, you haven't had it yet. So, Ooh. like, if you're planning Ooh. out, you know, worried about it, just what you were talking about. If you're worried about, like, oh, I can't do this without drinking, 
you're putting yourself at risk. So it, it really, the, the whole thing about keeping it in the day is so important because it's amazing, you know, one day at a time. And it really, really is important, you know, to keep it one day at a time, um, especially early on. I mean, when you project and you worry about things way down the road, I mean, you're setting yourself up for failure. Because I, I did, I was, I always had something coming up about why I wasn't going to stop drinking because I, I literally never, ever tried. Ever ever even thought about it until until I had yeah me neither. <laughs> I was me a great staller. I thought I couldn't get through X or Y or Z, and so I would just have to you know it, it's a lot like dieting. I'd try to diet, and I'd go two weeks and I wouldn't diet, and then I'd have one slice of pie, and I'd think, oh, you know, I've blown it. I'll start again Monday. You know that constant delaying. You know, begin where you are is one of my favorite expressions. Mm-hmm. Like just begin wherever you are because we don't have that much control over what happens anyway, you know? Yeah. Thank you. Amanda, you you started to ask a question earlier that we won't get to tonight, but you were talking about uh, mindfulness, which you guys have have touched on a little bit here. But I, I do believe we have an episode coming up on mindfulness and then a listener actually had suggested as well um, via an email learning how to sit with our emotions and that is coming up sometime in the month of January as an episode. Mm-hmm. So I, th- those will be good follow-up discussions to this one. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Well, I guess we're nearing the end of the show and I, I just want to um, mention this um, paying attention to these things is really important. I have to say that there's someone in my recovery community that's been around for a couple of years, and um, we lost that person um, mm-hmm. last week. And it's someone, mm-hmm. you know, that kept trying and trying and trying. So it's really serious business. Um, so, um, you know, it's just important that, you know, if something, you know, if if you do, if you do become, you know, have a relapse, get right back on track, get back in the game, um, you know, get back into recovery, um, but also, you know, do, you know, take action to stay in recovery um, because you don't always get a chance back. It's been, you know, a tough, tough uh, Mm -hmm. week for my community. And I I actually wouldn't even mention it um, except for this is someone who is very open about things um, because I'm always careful about that. But it's just, it's, it's, it's uh it's it's really it's really tough stuff. So on that mm-hmm. cheerful note, um I'd actually like to go around and see if anyone has any um closing thoughts that they'd like to add. How about you, Elizabeth? Any thoughts that you want to leave with our listeners? Um, just a just a, in the beginning it's just really important to try to put a barrier between you and alcohol. Um, I know with me, I was not very introspective in the beginning. I just really didn't have any clue what I was doing other than I wanted to stop drinking. So um, in the beginning, you know, just the, the, I guess the external triggers, um, pay attention to those, change your people, places, and things. You can always modify them later. I know certain people, you know, some people, Say well, I don't want to change my people. I have my like my friends. I love you know. I, but maybe instead of going out to a bar with them, maybe uh, see them for lunch for a while, and then you know you can you can always make changes and go back to you know phase 
certain people in, certain people out, but just sort of move things around so that you have a barrier between you and alcohol. And then um, as things become more of the new normal without with, uh, not drinking, you can dig into some more internal things and do some work with that. And I guess mm-hmm. that's all for me. <laughs> That's a good point. Right. Very good point. Well, and thank and thank you so much for being our guest tonight. It was really great to hear from you. Thanks um, for having me. Oh, we'll have you back again, I'm sure. <laughs> How about you, Ellie? <laughs> Any closing thoughts you'd like to share? Um, I oh gosh, I the, this has been a great show. I I love hearing everybody's different perspectives and I, Elizabeth, in particular, you said things tonight that I'm that I'm going to take with me. You have a very good way of express. You express yourself in a very visual way, and I that changing the channel concept really helped me a lot. Um, I also Thank you. one of the yes yeah, one of the things that I, um, oh gosh, I had a thought that just left my head. Oh, I know what it was. I have always been somebody that is just has a problem with impulsivity, emotional impulsivity, actual you know physical impulsivity, and. One of the most valuable lessons I've learned in early recovery, both times that I've been in it, is that if I'm not sure whether it's a dangerous situation with a person or with a place or a thing, if I'm not positive what to do with a thorny situation or a thought or an emotion, that doing nothing is doing something. I'm I'm really emphasizing Catherine's point about the pause. Mm. Um, because mm-hmm. the, some, especially if you live with somebody who drinks and you're around alcohol or you're in a situation where, you know, you feel emotionally vulnerable because a trigger doesn't always lead to a drink. A trigger for me is anything that leads to discomfort or fear mm. or pain or anger. I mean, all of those things is just a stepping stone closer to a drink. And sometimes for me, just doing nothing, staying where my feet are, you know, not going to everything I'm invited to, saying no to something, turning things down, keeping my life very small and and sacred and focusing on self-care, um, and early recovery was hugely, hugely, is still hugely important. But for me, learning how to just not do, not react, not try to control every single thing that happened to me, um, you know, that's what I lost the thread on as my recovery as my recovery progressed and I had more time under my belt. I got back into that action, action, action mode where I, I had to respond and react to everything, and it did. It led me away from recovery. So yeah, mm. doing something, doing nothing is doing something. Is my my, my great strongest point. point. Yeah. Yeah, great point. How about you, Catherine? Yeah, dovetailing on what Ellie said, um, I I heard in a recovery meeting early on that every action that I take is either leading me towards a drink or or away from a drink, and I take that seriously. Um, and even something we talked about tonight that's just always helpful for me to remember is that my thoughts and my feelings are not facts and mm-hmm. I can change them. That's that this has been a profound awakening for me that I really thought that they were facts that were fixed in time and space and were never going to change. And I can change them. I can change my thought by taking an action, even if it's eating something, if it's calling somebody, um, if it's walking around the block, if it's painting my armpits blue, just whatever it is to change my thought um, <laughs> and, and get me. <laughs> I haven't tried that yet, but but I reserve it in case. Where did that <laughs> come any, from? I don't know. 
this is the mind of an alcoholic. <laughs> Next week on the bubble hour. No, but I mean it's true. So anything that's gonna sort of snap me out of it um, will get me in that direction away from a drink. Yeah, that's so true. That's awesome. I love that visual too. I just all of a sudden like <laughs> say that. There you have it. <laughs> like, but it is something to distract you. That's such a you know that's awesome. <laughs> Oh, um, this is Amanda. I had so just a couple things I wanted to add is to pay attention to how you're feeling, whether it's good or bad. I actually had a little. um, We were talking about me and my boyfriend were talking about New Year's Eve, and we're gonna have a bonfire. And I was like, Oh, cool, we can have champagne. And I was like, Where? Where did that come from? (laughs) Both sober. Like really. Champagne doesn't really count, especially not around a bonfire, right? No, no. (laughs) Oh, I drank champagne because I had a face, honey. That's the you have a face. A bonfire, having a face. I drank champagne. It didn't matter. Yeah. Oh, it was just the funniest thing. I was like, wow. And so you know, you know, the thoughts do cross your mind, and it's actually something I learned to do early on. Sometimes I just like laugh at myself. I'm like, you are ridiculous. Like. It's a, I just think it's when my I actually it's I'm not lacking laughing at myself I'm lacking lacking at my um the um my disease I'm like yeah you're not getting me like it's just I it just amuses me I'm like wow is it what look at you trying to sneak in there go away mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but the other thing would you know about paying attention to your feelings um, with your actions is I'm not always and I need to get more mindful so I'm looking forward to that show. Um, is like one thing I'll do when I'm upset is my go-to is ice cream. And so when I find myself like emotionally, like literally like, okay, I'm home, something upset me and I need to go to the store and get ice cream, not just because it's in my refrigerator, but like something like that, I pay, you know, I pay attention to that. I'll let myself do it. Sometimes you do need to soothe yourself and it's okay. Um, But that's not something, if I'm, if, that's my way of dealing with my problems. I, you know, obviously I need to do a little bit more work on myself. Um, and actually that just reminded me of something. Um, when Elizabeth mentioned dry drunk, for our listeners who don't know what that term means, a dry drunk is someone who's sober and um, but isn't in a program of recovery because in recovery is where we learn how to deal with our, you know, our emotions and feelings and learn, you know, learn these tools. So even listening to this show show is um, a form of recovery. So Mm -hmm. it's learning how to do things different and a dry drunk just kind of just doesn't drink. And so they haven't changed anything about themselves. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a miserable way to live. So I wanted to add that. Good point. And um, just to, uh, again, like Ellie suggested, write down a list of your triggers or, you know, at least think through your triggers and the actions that you're going to take to deal with them. Um, you know, thinking about those things in advance. I know that was an exercise in all the different programs that I was in. We had to go through a list and write down what our external and internal triggers are and mm-hmm. how we, you know, plan on dealing with them. So. Mm-hmm. Um and if you're not sure what to do when you're triggered, listen to the bubble hour. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. You'll, at a minimum, you'll feel better about yourself just listening to us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's negative self-talk. Very... Never mind. I have to I have to go listen to that episode again. Cancel and bless that. Cancel and bless that. Thank you. Thank you. 
We actually got over a thousand likes on Facebook this week, ladies, which is there very cool. Home. That means it's wow. yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that just means that we're helping over a thousand people. So I just I hope so. Thank you for counterbalancing my negative self-talk with positive imagery. <laughs> good, good, good stuff. All right. Well, as we close the show tonight, we'd like to direct you to our parent organization, ShiningStrong.org. There you will find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. You'll also find a link to Jean's blog on Pinkles, as well as our email address, thebubblehour at gmail.com. Let us know your feedback about tonight's show format and any other topic suggestions you may have. And if you would like to go directly to the Bubble Hour's website, that is thebubblehour.com, and there you can listen to our shows directly um, to our shows and directly follow a link to subscribe to our podcast. We are also on Facebook, as I just mentioned, so please be sure to like our page. And we thank all of you for listening to the Bubble Hour and hope you have a great evening. And thank you, Elizabeth, Ellie, and Catherine. It's been a great show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Have a good night, everyone. Bye. All right, good, good night. night. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.